Hello, welcome to the European History Podcast. My name is Daniel. If you're liking this series, you can subscribe on iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook at the European History Podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or corrections, you can always email at the European History Podcast at gmail.com. Today, we're going to talk about the Hellenistic world and mostly focus on the military establish, the uh, establishment of the Macedonian domination of the Greek city-states and the political and economic broad strokes of the empire that Alexander goes on to create. So let's get right into it. The Hellenistic world refers to a cultural period of about 300 years when the Macedonian conquests and dynasties spread Greek culture and mixed it in with varying degrees with Egyptian and Near East traditions as far as the Indus River Valley in present, around present-day Pakistan. The kingdom of Macedon grew to the north of Greece, and unwittingly, the Macedonians protected Greek civilization from having to deal with invasions and conflicts from tribal cultures in further north in Europe. The Macedonian monarchy was partly dynastic, which means that it's based on a family lineage. Uh, but that uh, monarchy did require the approval of military forces, and there was a council of nobles that could check the power of a weak king or even remove them. Before the 4th century BCE, the kingdom of Macedon did not have the ability to even consider interfering in Greek civilization because they simply lacked the resources, the human resources and material resources. They had to deal with constant threats from those tribal cultures in the north in Europe, and they lacked uh, an effective enough or organized enough government cohesion. The Macedonians did share some cultural traits with the Greeks, such as a similar language and claims of family descent, and they also participated in uh, Greek games. So, King Philip II, he was at first uh, the regent on behalf of his nephew, the infant king, but uh, he overthrew his infant king and he made himself the ruler of Macedon. He put down tribal threats to the north and at first challenged Athenian control of the Aegean, taking the city-state of Amphipolis and its gold and silver mines. He used the revenue that he's got from the, this, the, this uh, territory to not enrich himself and basically live the good life, but to invest, to bribe uh, Greek political leaders into winning their support and uh, in other Greek towns, and also to improve and expand his army and military capacity. Uh, Philip II created a powerful professional army, a uh, permanent army, and this contrasted with the temporary ad hoc basis on which the Greek polises uh, established military defenses. The Macedonian pikes were simply better than the Greek ones. They were 13 feet long rather than 9 feet. And if you're going to have a fight with, if you're going to have a fight between two groups and their pikes are 4 feet longer, uh, the tip of their spears are going to have an advantage. They're going to get to you before yours can get to them. And the Macedonian phalanxes also fought in a much more kind of nuanced and flexible style and flexible formations. 
the Macedonian phalanx was not, not was not also was not key to victory in the field. The, the Macedonians started using these flexible phalanxes with longer pikes to basically hold the enemy Greek hoplite phalanx in check, hold it there to create an opportunity for a Macedonian cavalry, which was mostly nobles. And a cavalry of nobles would charge into an opportunity once it was there and basically break up the hoplite phalanx. King Philip also used mercenaries for information, basically espionage, about Greek tactics and plans, and to also increase his own fighting force. Around 350 BCE, Greek city-state of Thessaly asked uh, King Philip for assistance to come in, come into Greece and help them uh, when they're fighting with these uh, other two city-states. Uh, Philip of Macedon agreed, he defeated the enemy, and then he immediately turned on Thessaly. He took it over and started taking over the eastern Greek coast to the north. Athens still had a large uh, navy, but Athens did not have the revenue that it used to have, and it didn't have the allies that it used to have from the Delian League. The Athenian population had also uh, shrunk since the century before, and without a empire, without the Delian League, Athens' military expenses had to be paid for by Athenians themselves, and Athenians didn't really, weren't really keen on paying for that. The Athenian orator Demosthenes um, spoke out against this kind of cautious approach, this conservative approach, but Philip of Macedon continued on to conquer northern and central Greek city-states, and he was elected president, even elected president, of the Pythian Games at Delphi. So Philip is inserting himself into Greek political uh, power and cultural uh, positions. And it reminds me just briefly of kind of the role of the tyrants that we discussed in Greek history, how um, from time to time uh, a noble tyrant would, would come to power that would kind of rewrite all of the rules and it was kind of... Uh, could be seen as a refreshing thing, even though there's this corruption and these uh, these um, uh, corrupt uh, intentions. But he's definitely shaking things up at this time. And more than that, he's taking over Greek city-states. Though most Athenians agreed with Demosthenes eventually that Philip was a, a real threat to the Greek uh, polis uh, way of life, Athens continued to be hesitant. Uh, they continued following this cautious policy of trying to cooperate and hope that Philip would not pose a threat. Philip, meanwhile, continued buying off Greeks for support, and he finally attacked Byzantium and Perinthus, which were main trading partners of Athens. In 340 BCE, so 10 years later, the Athenians moved to defend the cities, and Philip declared war. Despite uh, Athens kind of getting uh, convincing Thebes to fight with them as an ally. Their combined forces were defeated at the Battle of Chironia, uh, forgive the pronunciation, Chironia, after a cavalry charge that was led by Philip's son, none other than 18-year-old uh, Alexander, who will become Alexander the Great. The Macedonian conquest uh, was pretty much uh, on very firm footing once Athens was defeated. The Macedonian conquest was not as brutal as it could have been, 
Athens was spared as long as it gave way to Macedonian leadership, and especially in foreign policy. And King Philip placed troops in Thebes, uh, Chalcis, and Corinth to consolidate his military and political control. In 338, he called a meeting of Greek city-states, and he created this, uh, basically on paper, the Federal League of Corinth, uh, who's, and I'll post this up on uh, our Facebook page at uh, the European History Podcast, uh, information about this. But in 338, he creates this federal, quote, League of Corinth, and it had a constitution. And in the constitution, it, it, the agreement, it gave autonomy and freedom from tribute or garrisons or coercion um, and guaranteed that they would fight piracy and prevent civil war. But this was all a fraud. However, King Philip of Macedon was in charge. The polis was over at this time in practice and in reality. Freedom of the city-states, the Greek city-states, ended at the battle that Alexander rode in on. And Greek culture, however, was going to live on. But the independence of the polis was over, and that very independence of the city-state government was fundamental to the central aspect of Greek culture. And so this is a big, bright line that we can draw. I mean, this way of life for centuries of city-states having independent autonomy using various types of government, be it an oligarchy or monarchy or democracy or some kind of tyranny or mixtures of all of those things, this, this lifestyle is over. These city-states are no longer in charge of their own affairs, and they're not going to be for, uh, for some time up into modern history. He chose, uh, so going on, King Philip chose Corinth for strategic and rhetorical purposes because it was in Corinth that the Greeks stood their ground against the Persian invasion 150 years before, and it was there in 337 BCE that King Philip announced a war on Persia for revenge. But Philip was assassinated the next year. A richly laden tomb was discovered in Macedonia in 1977, and that is largely believed to be that of Philip II. So he has this great plan, and he's assassinated the next year. His son, Alexander III, will come, come to be known as Alexander the Great. Alexander took the throne at age 20, and he held on to his father's plan to invade Persia. The Greek military adventure to Mesopotamia uh, some decades before showed the weakness of Persia despite its size and despite its vast resources. Alexander the Great launched the invasion in 334 with 30,000 men, 5,000 cavalry, but no money and no navy. And I think that is just in terms of the numbers and the realities of military uh, competition, I think what Alexander was able to achieve with such uh, so little resources by comparison is really what is remarkable, remarkable historically about him. Uh, so that's what I find most uh, interesting here. Alexander quickly used those men to conquer territory along the coastline of Asia Minor and to neutralize the Persian navy by taking over the ports so they won't have access to it. The Persian Memnon was the commander of the Persian navy, and Memnon recommended 
Uh, good strategy. It would have worked. He said that we need to do a slash and burn strategy. We need to retreat. We need to destroy everything as we retreat and basically deny Alexander uh, military victories and deny Alexander, more importantly, fundamental resources to keep fighting, to pay his men, to keep his men motivated, to, con to continue military discipline. Uh, so that's his that's his suggestion. But Memnon is overruled, and the Persian military and the monarchy chooses to a strategy of military confrontation. You know, let's fight head on. The problem with that is the Persians are going to fight and they're going to lose. The battle at the Granicus River saw Alexander charge in a cavalry formation right across the river, right into the face of the Persian army, and he defeated them. This solidified the loyalty of his soldiers. Everyone knew that this guy was unique and extraordinary and fearless, uh, a leader. This left open the coast, and he took the ports. In 333 BCE, Alexander went further into Syria, and King Darius personally led the main Persian forces. Alexander defeated him, and King Darius fled. Alexander then conquered Tyre by siege, and later Egypt, with little resistance from the native Egyptians, and they greeted him as a liberator, as a successor of one of the Egyptian gods, and as Pharaoh. King Darius then is getting desperate. He sends an offering to Alexander to end the conflict. Darius offers him the entire empire west of the Euphrates in Mesopotamia and his daughter's hand in marriage in exchange for peace. Alexander rejects the terms. He wants it all. 331 BCE, Alexander conquers Mesopotamia as Nineveh, and Darius personally has to flee again. Babylon is conquered and welcomes Alexander also as liberator. In 330, he goes on and he conquers Persepolis, the Persian capital. He took the massive treasury of Persepolis. He burned the city to the ground as the final revenge for the invasion of the Greek mainland and to also obliterate, kind of in a cultural terms, to obliterate the dynastic Persian seat of authority. He then personally pursued the living symbols of Persian authority. He pursued Darius himself, but found him dead. He was killed by his own nobles, with a relative named Bessus claiming the throne. So he pursues and catches Bessus as well, and the living uh, representations of Persian authority are gone. The physical representation at Persepolis is literally gone. He, is in, he has conquered Persia, the empire. By 327 BCE, uh, the time also made it, he had also made it through the Khaibar Pass near the Indus River. This is in modern day Pakistan. So that's, uh, that's going east of Iran, east of Afghanistan, and down into the Indian subcontinent. He kept pushing forward in part due to his great curiosity, which many writers and historians have uh, chosen to focus on. But by 324, his soldiers refused to move forward, and they return to the Persian Gulf, and they basically celebrate. For perspective, now stepping back geographically to get, try to get our uh, mind around this, this conquest of Alexander covers part, uh, you have to go uh, across Greece, across the Aegean Sea to Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, uh, and then uh, the Iran, and then Afghanistan, 
Pakistan and into India. Today, to get from that place in the Indus River back to Greece, it takes it's about a 21-hour flight with three different connections. So, pretty amazing. And he does this in a uh, very short amount of time, a little over 10 years. Alexander had great plans, of course, for his empire. He had very great organizational skill. That's what helped him be such an effective and efficient military leader. But in 323, Alexander dies of a fever in Babylon at age 33. His life and conquest gave birth to Hellenic civilization and all of these vast territories and kingdoms and river valley civilizations in these new parts of the Greek world. His infant child, though, was too young to take the throne, and so his generals divided the territory to govern together at first, but infighting soon saw the death of three of them personally, and in 310, Alexander's wife and child were killed. By 305, the empire of Alexander was divided with three major, well, five parts, but three major dynasties uh, grew up out of this division. Ptolemy I began in Egypt, the Seleucids in Mesopotamia, and Antigonus of Asia Minor and Macedon. Nonetheless, for 75 years, these territories of Alexander, conquered by Alexander enjoyed great prosperity. The money that he had taken from the Persepolis treasury went into circulation, speeding up economic transactions and activity. Economic opportunity started to attract Greeks from the mainland, from the city-states, and this started to relieve a lot of the pressure that the, and problems that the polises were facing. The demand for Greek products in these new territories started to grow considerably, and this prosperity, however, was mostly enjoyed by uh, Greeks themselves, with rural native populations continuing a basic peasant uh, farming survival. So we have a, a immediate inequality of wealth distribution. With this increased spending and transactions, inevitable inflation uh, can starts to grow up, and new military conflicts lead to re return to uh, domestic strife, civil wars, and with increasing economic problems returning after 75 years or so, calls for abolishing the debts, uh, restructuring debt, and redistributing land, which is basically uh, taxing the wealthy, redistributing uh, wealth. Once again, as we saw with the conflicting Greek city-states, this internal division of the Alexander territories paved the way for, you guessed it, all of these Hellenistic kingdoms and territories being dominated and conquered by the Roman armies by approximately 150 BCE, with the exception of Egypt, but it will later become conquered. But the 200 years between Alexander the Great and the Roman expansion and conquest of these territories created in these territories a rich and politically cohesive culture uh, in all of these areas. And we call this culture that rises up uh, for these 200 years Hellenism. And Hellens is the Greek term for Greek. And that is the episode for today. We covered basically the main government and military political um, events that occurred here to create the Hellenistic culture in these, at this place. And in our next episode, our last episode for Greece, 
we're going to talk about those aspects of Hellenistic culture. We're going to talk about sculpture and writing and philosophy, uh, literature, etc. Thank you for uh, listening. If you have any questions, again, you can uh, join us on the face, uh, Facebook at the European History Podcast. Thank you. See you next time. My name is Daniel.